Matthew chapter 16, and to sort of refresh your memory, let us look again at a few verses here. When Jesus asked in verse 15, Who do ye say that I am? Peter answers, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then answers, says unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Good to see you here today. Glad that you're available, present, and accounted for. We have many that are out of pocket. My wife and youngest daughter are in Houston today. Uh, We celebrated our 22nd wedding anniversary Friday, and Saturday morning she left off for Mother's. I guess that tells you how it went. No, uh, we, uh, her youngest sister had a um, nine pound, 11 ounce baby boy on uh, Friday. So she is down there visiting with them for the next few days, helping out with the new arrival. So do be praying for them and many, many more are here, there and everywhere. As we go into our subject this morning, let's sort of recall where we are, where we've been. We have viewed the church as the people of God, as the body of Christ, and as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Today we want to turn our attention to this rather foundational passage where it is for the first time that Jesus calls our attention to the fact that there will be such a thing as his church. It's the first time that he makes it clear that there will be such an institution as his church. The word church, as you know, is a word that means literally assembly or speaks of those that are called out, but it was used many times to speak of an assembly called together for a certain purpose or another. It's very similar in meaning to the word synagogos, a synagogue, uh, but it's interesting that throughout the New Testament, that with a couple of exceptions, that the word church is used, it seems picked to contrast with the Jewish institution of the synagogue. So it's not really the same thing at all. It is indeed a new thing, and therefore we have this new word that is applied and appropriated to describe it. We see from our text this morning that the whole discussion begins with a question from the lips of Jesus. Remember Conrad Merle telling me that as he was a student under B.B. Caldwell down at New Orleans Baptist Seminary years ago that Brother Caldwell would oftentimes begin his discussions by asking a question and uh, he said it didn't take me too long to figure out that when he was asking me a question he wasn't really interested in what I had to say. He was really trying to tell me something. And I dare say that that will be the case here that our Lord is more interested really in what he has to tell the disciples than their answer, although their answer is important. But the question is, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, we notice their reply. Some of them say that thou art John the Baptist. Indeed, in Luke chapter 9 and in verse 7, King Herod uh, had indeed come to the conclusion that Jesus was John the Baptist one that he had beheaded, raised from the dead. And that report of the miracles of Jesus and the crowds that were flocking to him greatly perplexed Herod, we find. So that indeed was a true assessment. 
Some indeed thought that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead, although that was not true. Their ministries, in fact, overlapped. Some say, according to them, that thou art Elias or Elijah, the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Now, why would some think that he was Elijah? Well, the very last thing that we had in the Old Testament canon the very last couple of verses of the book of Malachi. And remember that that was what caused all the excitement in the days of John the Baptist, is that there had not been a prophetic word for well nigh 400 years ever since Malachi the prophet uttered these words. And suddenly a man appears on the scene that looks a whole lot like Elijah. The description that we had of Elijah was that he girded himself with camel's hair, he uh, ate... Locusts, some say that was a particular fruit of a tree over there. I do not know if that's the case or not, but I don't like the sound of it. Uh, And sure enough, here comes John the Baptist along, looks a lot like Elijah, sort of a wild man, girded in camel's hair. And notice the very last thing that Malachi uttered before the prophetic word, that door was shut for some 400 years, are these words in Malachi 4 verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children. And the heart of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So they were uh, certainly many who were looking for the appearance of Elijah. And indeed Jesus told his disciples that John the Baptist was indeed Elijah. No, not in identity. But John came in his ministry in the spirit and in the power of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Then there were some who said that you are Jeremy or Jeremiah. In the Maccabean books, which were written in the interbiblical time between the time of Malachi and Matthew, there was a reference there that Jeremiah had, during the time of the Babylonian assault, taken the Ark of the Covenant and hidden it. And that before the Messiah comes, that Jeremiah would reappear and more or less bring the ark back to the temple there in Jerusalem. Well, whether or not there's any validity to that, I wouldn't give it any validity at all, but that was a prevailing notion of that day, that Jeremiah indeed was to reappear and to somehow reestablish the temple worship back in the sort of the good old old time religion that they used to have back when the ark was there. So it's very natural that some would think that Jesus indeed was Jeremiah. And then others simply said, one of the Old Testament prophets. You are one of these Old Testament prophets have been raised from the dead and has reappeared. Indeed, this report of the disciples was quite accurate. That's exactly what people were saying. And what's interesting in this is that none of them say, well, some people think you're the Messiah. Did you notice that? They said, they think you this, or they think you John, or they think you one of the prophets. But they didn't say, now there's a segment out there that thinks that you're the Christ. And what is interesting about that is that at one point in Jesus' ministry, there was a large segment that thought that he was the Messiah. But as time went on, that conviction began to dwindle because Jesus certainly did not look like what they thought the Messiah would look like. His ministry was not that which they had envisioned of their preconceived notions of the Messiah. And so it is very telling at this point that by this time, no one of these disciples say, there's some folks out there that believe that you're the Christ. No, that was not what people were saying of Jesus at this point. 
And so it is that Christ now asked another very pointed question. But who do ye say that I am? After all, in things of religion, it's not really what the masses are saying. It's not what the most people think. Uh, we have been studying popular culture and its effect on Christianity in our Sunday school class. And one of the things that we have noted about popular culture is that it's numbers obsessed. It's it's the idea of that which uh, sells the most records is the best record. That movie which draws the most attendance is the best movie. Strictly a popularity contest. And so the religion that comes along with popular culture in our day is that religion that is just most naturally embraced by the most number of people. That must be right. How could, how could these millions of people believe these things and they be wrong? That's certainly the message that we are fed through the media of popular culture in our day. But when it boils down to the crux of the matter, it's really not what the masses say. It's what do you say? And that's what Jesus asks. Whom do ye say that I am? And here we have good old impulsive Peter jumping to the forefront again. And I'm glad he was that way. Some of us are a little bit more reserved. We don't say what's on our mind. But you didn't have to worry about what Peter was really thinking. He told you what he was really thinking, sometimes to his own discredit and hurt. But we term this, it's been called Peter's Confession. Indeed, it's not only Peter's Confession. It is the profession and confession of all who have comprised the church in all ages. Notice that it basically consists of two parts. First of all, that Jesus is the Christ. The Greek term Christos was the word used to translate the Old Testament term, Hebrew word for Messiah. You are the anointed one. Both terms meant that. And of course, when Peter calls Jesus the anointed one, the Christ, he had in mind more than just a prophet or just a king or perhaps a priest, other offices that were anointed. It made it clear when he calls him the Christ that he is speaking of that one who had been promised throughout the Old Testament canon, that person that the prophets kept pointing to that was coming. So he makes it clear that in the person of Christ, he believes, or in the person of Jesus, I should say, that was really his name, that he believes that he has found the one of whom the prophets spoke. He is the Christ. But that's not all Peter confessed. He confessed that he was the Son of God. Many have argued and been a great deal of controversy about what exactly that means. And I'm not sure if Peter really understood all that he had uttered at this point in time. But I do believe that he understood this. That this person, Jesus of Nazareth, was not an ordinary man. That he came from heaven. That was the message that Jesus kept pounding into the ears of his disciples. I am not of the earth. I came from my Father. But he not only came from God. That he was sent by God. That he was the God sent one. He was the representative of God. He spoke for God. That message Jesus pounded in their ears. That the things that I'm saying are not my own things. They are the things that I heard with my Father. The message that he brought therefore was a God sent message. He spoke for God And he acted as God. Claiming prerogatives and powers that rightly belong to God and to God alone. 
You remember the day that the man, oh what a day, crowded place, the house where Jesus was teaching, all of a sudden the commotion, they look up and somebody's tearing the roof away. What a shock if we were in this place today and looked up and saw a hole in the roof and then no sooner do they get over that, but here they're lowering a man down through the hole in the roof on his bed, a man that obviously is paralyzed and cannot walk. You couldn't have asked for a better script, a more dramatic moment. I suppose that if you'd been there that day, you would have said, aha, now here comes the great test. We'll really see something today. Everybody knew what was to be done next. Why, everybody knew that Jesus was going to say to this man, man, take up thy bed and walk. And yet, he didn't do the obvious thing. He instead turned to the man and said, man, thy sins be forgiven. And not only did he disappoint the crowd, I'm sure they said, oh man, you know, I thought we were really going to see something. But he upset the scribes and Pharisees who said, oops, he just blasphemed. Because only God, God and God alone can forgive sins. This man is claiming an attribute, an authority, a power that belongs only to God. The prophets of old may have raised men up that could not walk, but none of the prophets of old would have dared said to that man, man thy sins be forgiven. No one would have claimed that power, that right, that prerogative, that belongs to God alone. That's his territory. And here stands a man speaking as if he were God. Who does he think he is? Well, that's the point. He thinks he's God. He really does. That's the message of the New Testament. He he thinks he's God. And he either is or he's a loony tune, one or the other. That's the only choice we got. And so Jesus, as if it were again reading their minds, says, you want to see something? You know, on the one hand, you say, well, what a cop out. If he had said to the man, man, get up and walk, and the man still lay there, we'd know he had no power. But he says, man, thy sins be forgiven thee. How do we know? Does a man whose sins are forgiven look any different from the man before his sins were forgiven? And so Jesus said, you want to know whether I have power on earth to forgive sins, to do that which only God can do? Man, get up and walk! And up he jumps. And they start scratching their heads and saying, man, we've seen strange things today. They had. They saw a man speak as God would speak. And that, no doubt, is what Peter is saying. He may not know all of the mystery." Of the nature of Jesus Christ. The mystery of two natures in one undivided person. But he knows he's the Son of God. And my friend, that is indeed the confession of all of those who are placed as living stones in this mystical spiritual building we call the Church of Jesus Christ. But now notice that Jesus, and what I want to call your attention to, is the blessing that now follows upon this confession. I want you to notice that in verse 17, there is an understood it. It is understood, and you'll know, if you have a King James translation, you'll know that the translators, in fact, inserted the word it. It'll be there in italics to show that the passage calls for a understood it. Now what is that it? When Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto you. What what does it mean? What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about what Peter just said. 
the persuasion, the belief that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, that He is the Christ. That's the it that is sort of understood in that next verse, in verse 17. And there are two things now that Jesus will say about that it. One negative, one positive. First of all, he will tell us that flesh and blood did not reveal it to you. This persuasion, this belief, this faith that Jesus is the Christ did not come from flesh and blood. Now that's an interesting phrase. What does he mean, flesh and blood? We wouldn't say that today. Say, well, Randy, flesh and blood didn't give you those clothes, you know, whatever. We wouldn't say things like that. It's not a it's not in our vernacular. We don't talk in those terms. But the scripture oftentimes uses the term flesh and blood to speak of that which arises from man. Now, first of all, it may use it in the sense of that which arises from other men. After all, I have to admit, you're flesh and blood out there. And so that which arises from you, we will term flesh and blood. And the first thing that Jesus is making clear to Simon Peter is that you believe it, this testimony, not because of the testimony of other men. It's not their arguments, it's not their logic, it's not their reasoning that has persuaded you somehow to believe it. And secondly, the term flesh and blood not only speaks of that which arises from other folks out there, it also speaks of that which arises from within the man himself. For not only are you flesh and blood, I'm flesh and blood. We might have thought through, said, well, Peter, you know, good boy. You finally caught on. I mean, you've been walking with me close to three years now. You've seen all my works. You've heard my teaching. It finally dawned on you who I am. Jesus does not say that. He says, no, flesh and blood have not revealed this unto you. Your own wisdom, your own intellect, your own ability to logically arrange the pieces of the puzzle has not brought you to this conviction. Because I remind you, there were others who saw the miracles, others who heard the teaching, and they weren't convinced. Well, then on the positive declaration, what was the thing that had brought Peter to believe it? It. But my Father, who is in heaven, has revealed. There's the understood completion of the sentence. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed it. You see the contrast? Look over for a similar spot, a similar place in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we read that Christ, the Word, came to His own. His own received Him not. And then in verse 12 of John 1, we read, To as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Now there's almost a suggestion here that John is calling your attention to those who did receive Him as something's peculiar about those folks. Because He said that He came to His own and His own wouldn't receive Him. But there were some that received Him. Well, what's peculiar about these? Why did they receive him when the rest, his own, would not? Well, that's what then is discussed in the very next verse, verse 13, who were born. Well, that's why these folks received him when others didn't. They were born. Well, what do you mean born? Well, he says, not of blood. They weren't born like an Israelite's born. 
It's not a fleshly birth, not a consequent of birth. They're not born of blood, nor are they born of the will of the flesh, referring to man's own will. They have not willed themselves born. The theological monstrosity that we have on the scene today that tells a man that he can will himself born again is, is the most absurd thing. There's nothing in the universe that births itself. The very choice of the term birth rules out the fact of man's own will being involved in the process. That's clear. It's not that you're born of the will of the flesh, nor, he goes on to say, of the will of man. The will of other flesh. Now do you begin to understand then when he says not of flesh and blood, what does he mean? The same thing that he means here. Not of blood, not of the will of flesh, not of the will of man, not the will of the preacher or the priest. Some other man. Well then how did they get born? They're born of God. It's God's will. That has birthed them. God's power. God's might. That has birthed them. And that's why they receive him. When his own received him not. And so in our text in Matthew 16. My friend do you not see that this is one of the strongest assertions of the sovereignty of God in scripture. That you can possibly find anywhere in the New Testament. For Jesus is saying of Simon Peter that it is not your own will that has brought about this faith. But it's God's will. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. God showed it to you. We understand then that faith is based upon ultimately a revelation. It's as if the eyes of our soul are opened. And you'll talk to a lot of folks that will tell you that when they were saved, that that's what it was like. All of a sudden it was like I could see. John Newton said, once I was lost, now I'm found, was blind. But now I see. No, not blindness of the physical eye. Another kind of blindness. A worse kind of blindness. Like that old prodigal son down there slopping pigs. And all of a sudden he came to himself, the scripture says, and he, and he saw. He saw, this is nuts. My father's hired servants are eating better than this. I'm going home. And faith, saving faith, is based upon a kind of seeing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul describing the New Testament ministry and the New Testament minister says that it's not that our gospel is hidden. Some of us might be accused of doing that, I suppose, where we talk so unintelligibly. But he says, no, it's not that we're hiding what we say. You see, the mystery religions of Paul's day did exactly that. They hid their religion. They, they kept the truths, the real vital things from the common man. They only let the initiates in on the secrets. And as you progressed in their religion, they let you know more and more. And Paul is contrasting the ministry of the gospel to that which permeated pagan religion of the day. No, it's not that we're not telling you all that there is. It's not that we're hiding the gospel. 
why he says we're handling, in verse 2 he says we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. We're not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Well, why is it then that some folks just don't see it? Well, he goes on in verse 3, but if our gospel be hidden, it is hidden to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Satan has blinded them. They cannot see these things. And that's why this glorious gospel, this shining truths, do not shine to them. He says in verse 5, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. When did God do that? He was back there right in Genesis 1, wasn't it? How did he do that? Why, he spoke. Did He didn't get his chemistry set out and make some. He just said, let there be light. And there was light. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. My friend, that's what's happened in the heart and life of every believer, every Peter who has made this confession. They make it because flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto them, but the Father who is in heaven. Saving faith is based upon a revelation from God. Oh yes, we look at words on a page. But mere words on a page, my friend, will not bring you to saving faith. God must speak. God must move through those words. So you see, faith is not that which is conjured up by the will of man. It is that which is bestowed upon man from above as a gracious gift. That was the the thing that I wrestled with. Oh, it's been almost 20 years ago now. That I was wrestling with these things saying, you know, where does this come from? It all boiled down in my mind of the question of the origin of faith. If faith is something that man works up within himself, then everything that I'm hearing is right and correct. But if faith is that which comes from God, if it's the response of man to something God has done, then everything I've heard all my life is backwards, upside down. And I was studying through the book of Acts one day. I know I had read these things before. I know I had taught the book of Acts before. I know I had stumbled on these things. But in God's good providence, I was looking in Acts chapter 13 where Paul was speaking at the synagogue in Pisidia. How he was preaching there in the Jews. It was his custom to go to the synagogue and it was the Jews' custom to run him off. And that's of course what happened this time. And so he went to the Gentiles. He said, I'm not gonna, you've put eternal life from me down here in verse 36. You've judged yourselves unworthy of it, he says to the Jews. So right, we're gonna turn to the Gentiles. And in verse 48, it said, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. 
And all that hit me like a sledgehammer between the eyes. And I said, that's it. That's it. It's not as I would have it read, as many as believed were ordained to eternal life, but it's backwards. As many as were ordained to eternal life, believed. And every single time in the book of Acts, when the results are attributed to something, they're always universally attributed to the grace of God, never to the will of man. Flesh and blood, Peter has not shown this to you, hasn't done this. My Father, who is in heaven, has revealed it. So faith or election, my friend, was not God looking out through His amazing time machine, telescope, And seeing Mark Webb the unbeliever, Mark Webb the rebel, Mark Webb the disobedient, and seeing me turn, seeing me will, and therefore him choosing me on the basis of faith foreseen. But the disobedience that he saw in me as he looked further into time, he simply saw more disobedience, more rebellion. As blind as I was, look as far as you want, and he only saw more blindness. God put His grace upon me so that I will say that it is not of works. Oh, by grace are you saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, is the gift. The gift of God. Now, I want us to dwell a little while on verse 18 this morning. You no doubt know that there's so much controversy that has swelled around this verse throughout the centuries. For Jesus does not stop with the fact that the Father has revealed these things to Peter, but now he pronounces certain blessings upon Peter. That's just the way God works. He gives grace for grace. It's as if Peter were the one responsible for seeing these things. And because Peter, of his own self, of flesh and blood, has seen these things, now Christ will reward him. Grace for works. But no, God gives grace for grace. Irrespective of the fact that Peter didn't see these things of himself in the first place, it was the Father who showed him these things. Now Jesus says, because you see these things, which was grace in the first place, I'm going to give you a blessing. I'm going to grace you for that grace that you have. That's the way God works. Grace for grace. And so what is the blessing that will come upon Peter? He says, well, I say that thou art Peter. And upon this rock... I will build my church. The question that should cause our attention to dwell on for a few moments is the question of what is the rock of which Jesus speaks in this verse. That, of course, is what the main controversy has been about. There are three main views regarding the rock. First of all is that Jesus is talking about Peter's faith. That that is the rock on which Christ will build his church. Peter's faith. Growing up, that was what I was taught. So I know that's taught. The second view is that the rock on which the church will be built is Christ. The sense of the verse would be, Thou art Peter. But upon this rock, speaking of Christ himself, I will build 
my church. The third view is that this passage speaks of Peter himself being the rock. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, Peter, I will build my church. Now, probably make you upset when I tell you what I believe the scripture teaches here. But let's keep a couple of things in mind. First of all, remember, and I'm sure you know that in the Greek, the word for Peter is Petros, meaning a stone. A stone like you would pick up and throw. Thou art Peter. Thou art a stone. The word for rock here in the Greek is Petra. In fact, you know of the rocky city of Petra that was one of the last places to fall in the Roman Wars where the Jews committed suicide up there in mass. It speaks of a massive stone, a massive rock, a massive boulder. And so it is on the basis of this change of wording that the various theories or the ideas of what that verse really means have arisen. You remember that first time Jesus saw Peter, his name was actually Simon. It is, in fact, as in verse 17, Simon Bar-Jonas. Bar-Jonah meaning son of Jonah or Jonas. He was Simon, the son of Jonas. But the first time that Jesus met him there in John chapter 1 and verse 42, Jesus said, you shall be called Cephas. And the scripture goes on to tell us, which means by interpretation, a stone. You see, Cephas was the Aramaic word of which Petros was the same term in Greek. Both meant a stone. So that was more or less a prophetic utterance. You shall be known as Cephas, as a stone. And here we see this coming to fruition. Now, may I say that I find the first view untenable. That is, that the rock in verse 18 is in fact our faith. Because faith is not a rock of itself. Faith is something that rests upon something else. Faith is trust, belief in a testimony. And as we have seen in the case of Peter, the difference between human faith and saving faith is that saving faith believes the testimony of God. The revelation of God as opposed to the revelation of man. And so I do not find it logical in the, in the least that man's faith becomes the building material, as it were, of the church. Indeed, that is part of the work of God, is part of that process, but it is certainly not the foundation of God's church. Faith itself must have a foundation. It is not the foundation. We cannot have faith in our faith. Faith rests itself upon a foundation. And everywhere else in Scripture, we find that it is always people that are talked of in the sense of this allegorical sense of being the foundation, not faith. The second view, if we were to take a vote, popularity, again, sort of like popular culture does, I think we would all vote for that. Right? I mean, that just sort of sounds good. I like the idea that Christ is the rock on which the church is built, and I can certainly find Support for that elsewhere in the New Testament for that idea that Christ is indeed the stone which the builders rejected. The same now is made the head of the corner. There's no question that indeed Christ is indeed the cornerstone of the church. No controversy. But the problem is I don't believe that's what Christ is saying right here in this verse. 
So I've got to make a choice. Am I going to eisegete or exegete? Am I going to read into a verse what I want it to say or am I going to let the verse speak to me what it says? And that I find I must exegete. I must let the text speak to me and not me to the text. The third view is what I believe is the correct view. You that are coming from Roman Catholic backgrounds probably don't like that particular view for obvious reasons. And may I hurriedly say, no, I don't believe it says what the Roman Catholics believe it says. But I believe this is the sense in which Jesus is speaking. Let me give you about four different reasons why I believe that to be so. First of all, that's the natural rendering of the verse. If you were to hand this to somebody that didn't know any better and say, what does that mean? What rock is Jesus referring to? They would most naturally, and I think we'd all have to admit that, that would be the natural way to interpret it. If you were to hand it to a child, say, read these words. Now tell me, when Jesus said that on this rock, I'll build my church, what rock was he talking about? The most natural rendering of the text would be that he's talking about Peter. I would find that that's the way I would naturally read it if I didn't have a hidden agenda. If it wasn't for the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, that's exactly how I would naturally read it. That I am acting, if I take another interpretation, especially the interpretation that makes Christ that rock, that I am rendering it that way out of a reaction to an abuse, an historical abuse that I'm aware of. But if you weren't aware of that, you would most naturally render it. Most of the time, Scripture lends itself to the most natural interpretation. I think we're aware of that. What comes natural in some people's circles different from others. We had a lady bootlegger back in my home county when I was growing up, hit one of her customers in the head with a ball-peen hammer. The county coroner ruled that she, he died of natural causes. <laughs> he just figured you hit somebody in the head with a ball-peen hammer, you just naturally going to die. You know, that's the way he figured it. Well, what comes natural to some may be completely different from what comes natural to others, but... I think we would agree that is the natural thing. Now you say, well, wait a minute. What about the change of word? If this was indeed the fact, a Petra that he is talking about instead of Petros, why wouldn't he apply that term Petra to Peter? My friend, Petra is a feminine word. You would not apply a feminine noun as a name of a male person. Do you... Do understand what I'm saying. In fact, some commentators have said Jesus speaking not in Greek but in Aramaic, that there would be no distinction, such distinction in Aramaic in the words that he actually spoke. That comes into play. The second reason is that this interpretation preserves the logic of the passage. I want you to notice that there is a parallelism going on in verse 16 and verse 18. In verse 16, Peter says, you are the Christ. In verse 18, Jesus says, you are Peter. You see that one is following the other. It is as if as Peter is saying in verse 16, you are not Jesus, you are Jesus Christ. And Jesus is turning and saying, you are not Simon, you are Simon Peter. They're both parallel to one another. In fact, we even have a discussion of genealogy here. You are Simon, son of Jonah. Peter says you are the son of God. 
In other words, in verse 16, Jesus is the subject of the discussion. This is who you are and what you are. In verse 18, the most natural way then to interpret it would be then, Peter, this is who you are and what you are. Were we to interpret that the rock in verse 18 is in fact Christ, we must then believe that Jesus is talking to Peter in the first part of the verse, then without explanation talks about himself in the last part of the verse, and then in verse 19 turns back to talking about Peter. When he says, I will give unto thee, he's obviously not talking about himself, the keys of the kingdom. In other words, we've got Christ saying, thou art Peter, addressing him, then turning around and to say, upon this rock, this rock, I will build my church, but I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom. Do you follow my, my reasoning here? You've got the subject moving all around, whereas the most natural explanation, again, is that no, that just as Peter says these things of Christ, so Christ now in verse 18 says these things of Peter. The third reason is that this interpretation does no violence to the metaphor that is being employed here. We've already seen that there are several great metaphors that Jesus applies to his church, one of which is a field. Paul says, ye are God's husbandry. You're like a field. And therefore, Paul, using that analogy or that metaphor, says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. There's other metaphors. The metaphor of Christ's body. That the church is like a body, and we've talked at great length about that. But back in that second, uh, first Corinthian passage, where Paul said, you're God's husbandry, you're his field. He turns right around and switches to another metaphor. You're God's building. And we'd have to all admit, that's the metaphor that's being used here. The church is being viewed as if it were a building, as if you were constructing something. But in verse 18, you will notice that the metaphor does not place Christ as the building material. He is instead in verse 18, the builder. Right? I will build my church. At least in this metaphor. Now we would say, well, but in other places, Christ is called the rock, the cornerstone of the church. Yes, he is. But in this metaphor, Christ is not speaking of building material, but of himself as builder. It would seem strained at best that he would be speaking of himself both as builder and building material. Furthermore, the interpretation is quite scriptural that he's speaking of Peter. Jesus did not say, Peter, you are the rock on which I'll build my church. That is a Roman Catholic invention that Christ is given, giving here to Peter exclusively a power, a prerogative that belongs to Peter himself and to no one else. That is the Roman Catholic abuse of this verse. That there's an exclusive power being granted to Peter here. He does not in any sense imply that whatever he is blessing Peter with can be conveyed by Peter to his successors. That is a Roman Catholic Invention. 
Neither does it imply that our allegiance somehow must be to Peter. Jesus said, it's my church. Whatever the rock is, he says, I will build my church. Our allegiance is to Christ and not Peter. In truth, according to scripture, the cornerstone of the church's foundation is the person and work of Jesus Christ, not Peter. But having said all that, look carefully at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, again looking at verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and pilgrims, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. In other words, it is not in the least bit unscriptural to speak of apostles, which Peter most definitely was, as being a foundation to the church. That is, in fact, how Paul will apply it. No, you are not the cornerstone, but you are a foundation. And he speaks here of not only the apostles, but prophets. I believe this verse is repealing to the testimony of the Old Testament prophets, which Peter himself appeals to. You want a more sure word of testimony than my testimony? Read your own prophets. That's what he writes in 1 Peter. Look, as you will, in Galatians chapter 2. Again, Paul going to Jerusalem finally. He received this gospel by revelation. Now he goes to talk to the main men in Jerusalem. Verse 9, Galatians 2 verse 9, when James, Cephas, that was his Aramaic name, Peter, when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles, and they unto the circumcision. Now it might be argued that, well, Paul doesn't really, well, but at the least we'd have to say that he's making use of this analogy. They were indeed pillars in the church. The analogy is at least used. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 24, here we see the new Jerusalem come down from heaven. We're given a description of that city. In verse 14 of Revelation 21, we read, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in, the name, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. In other words, I'm saying that the scripture itself does indeed employ apostles as being part of the foundation of the church. And then, of course, we have Peter's own testimony. We don't have time to look at it, but 1 Peter 2, where he speaks of Christ as a living stone. And then he says, we also as living stones are built up a spiritual temple. I may make notice at least of the fact that no one ever claims a supremacy of Peter above the other apostles. Peter himself does not even claim that supremacy. Never was it, well about 400 years went by before anybody thought up the idea that Peter would be the preeminent apostle among the apostles somehow and that he would convey his powers to his successors. No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm believing this emphasizes, and I'll close with this, I know we're getting late here. But the view points out something that I believe that we may well have missed in our study of Scripture and in our impression of 
of what is being taught us here is that there is indeed a sense in which the ministry of New Testament apostles was foundational in the building of Christ's church. It is not a matter of apostles versus Jesus. That's the wrong way of looking at it. Rather, it is that Jesus used and employed these specially chosen men to build his church. And he laid the foundation of his church with those men. Not to say that they are in any sense somehow taking his place. No one could take the place of the chief cornerstone. But I want you to consider the state of the church at the time of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Indeed, that great work was the laying of the cornerstone. The work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. The cornerstone is laid. But consider the state of the church. Would you not say at best it was in disarray? Think of the work that still remained to be done. The work of evangelism. Oh, we had a few folks here and there that were converted in the ministry of Jesus Christ. But remember, it was basically to the apostles that Jesus said, Go ye therefore, seeing that I have done these things, seeing I have gone to Calvary, been resurrected, and now ascending to God, and have all power in heaven and earth in my hands, now you go. The great work of evangelism throughout the world was given to the apostles. We think of the work of inscripturating the gospel message to which you and I are so, what shall we say, uh, uh, what would we do? Where would we be? Well, we talked about that a few weeks ago. But where would we be today without the inscripturation? And that basically was a work. Jesus left no writings behind. It was a work given to the apostles to do. The work of organizing the New Testament church was a work largely undone. There had not been much said about how the church would function, its offices, its things that went on. Yes, we have the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's table. But the things that we find Paul referring to in the pastoral epistles, the idea of how the church would function in its inner workings, all of that was left to apostles. Now we have many and it's very popular in our day to say, well, we find something we don't like in the writings of the apostles. We say, well, that's just old Paul talking. You know, Paul didn't like women, so that's why he comes down on them so hard to tell them to be quiet and all this. No, my friend, what I'm saying is that we've got to be crystally clear in our thinking. You do not divide the ministry of Jesus Christ from the ministry of his apostles. He is working through those men in the inscripturating of the New Testament message. He's saying, I will send my comforter, the Spirit, to you. He will bring all these things to your remembrance. Yes, apostles did the work, but under the superintendence of the Holy Ghost, given through the ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, got to stop. We didn't even get halfway through this, but we'll... um, I guess we'll know what part two will be next week because we haven't even talked about the fact of the keys of the kingdom. The power of loosing and binding. Things that are very important that we need to be clear on. I think you'll, perhaps I can make it even better, uh, more, more clear as we proceed in talking of those subjects exactly what I'm saying today. Well, I can oftentimes be wrong. I've been wrong before. 
But I believe you'd agree with me that the natural rending of that verse, if we just let it say what it says, the most natural interpretation would be a reference to Peter. My point is, is that that's not unscriptural. By saying that Peter is a rock on which Christ will build his church, we're not contradicting other scripture. And we're certainly not implying by that the abuses that the Roman Catholics have built in historically to their system. But it's rather that simply Jesus will in fact employ these apostolic men, the apostolic witness, in the establishment of his church. You and I owe a great debt, my friend, to the ministry of the apostles. The writer of Hebrews said that uh, Christ came, he spoke of this great word, this word of salvation, which at the first was spoken by the Lord, and then was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. The apostles bridged that gap between those that believe, like Thomas, because they saw, and those like you and I, who believe, though we see not. Our faith rests a large degree upon the work of apostolic men writing in this book. A book that we believe is not just the work of apostolic men. It's the work of God. The Holy Spirit superintending them. Well, I asked you today where, where you found it, where you rested. Are you built up into that spiritual house? Have you been placed on the foundation of Christ, His apostles, Is it the New Testament gospel that is the foundation, the rock of your life? Everybody's looking for a foundation. Everybody wants a rock, something to rest on. My friend, the world will give you a lot of rocks, but they're awful shaky. We live in shaky times, shaky days. We see that so clearly in the events unfolding in the Middle East, how easy it is for this world to come crashing down. You want a sure and certain refuge, you'll not find it in this world. My friend, like Abraham, I trust that you might look for that city which hath foundations. Hear that? The city that hath foundations that God built. That's the faith of an Abraham. Looking for that which God had built. And that's the faith of all those who are the spiritual seed of Abraham, following in his steps. They're looking for that city to come down out of heaven, the one that God built. That's where their assurance, that's where their confidence rest. I trust you can say that's true of you this day. If not, oh, everyone that thirst, let him come to the water. Let's pray. Father, assist us in our study of these weighty matters and things, that we be correct, that we be clear in our thinking, that we not view your word through colored glasses, tinning it with our own presuppositions. But Lord, may we be faithful as well to impress men with the importance of the message of what is said, that it is necessary for us to be built into this spiritual temple, placed as a living stone upon that cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Father, in the final result, we rest in Him. 
We're appreciative of the ministry of the apostles, of their labors, of their witness, their testimony. But they, like those Old Testament prophets, did not point to themselves. Those Old Testament prophets pointed to one to come. And these apostles speak of one who has come and who's coming again. We rest in Christ. He is our hope. We have found him to be the rock of ages, the rock of our soul. And if one is outside of him today, deal with their hearts. Speak to them. Draw them in saving faith to him. Open their eyes that they might see. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.